It is Locked on Jazz for the 12th of April. Previewing the Rockets, Ben DeBose of Locked on Rockets stops by, and we'll have you ready for Sunday's Game 1. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. Pow! Broadcasting live from a snow globe in Park City, Utah. How about that on April 12th? Bet you it's not doing that in Houston. How you doing? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA Insider. This is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz, giving you insight, expertise, lots of geeky numbers, hopefully making you a smarter fan, making it a better experience to be a fan, and making it so you enjoy the games this week more. If you're new to the podcast, thanks so much for tuning in. Our numbers were fairly mammoth yesterday. So a bunch of you are either new or returning to the podcast again. Thanks. Uh, we'll be with you throughout all of playoffs. Locked on NBA right now is incredible. Ben Golliver and I sat down, did a big picture uh, podcast about the league. I thought it was great. And then Eastern Conference, Western Conference experts with the Locked On Podcast Network, uh, guys that you can only get from our network uh, and how it's been built, and uh, those guys. So uh, hopefully you grab uh, those shows. Let, let's get into some of the nitty-gritty and then Ben DeBose of Locked On Rockets will join us for the program uh, to break down uh, some of those things. All right, here is the nitty-gritty of what this series really comes to. It's pretty interesting, actually. Um, and that is when you look at the way offenses are run in the NBA and you look at the Utah Jazz, and there's a few things. So shot quality. The Utah Jazz are number one in the NBA at shot quality. They're a little below average at shooting. The Rockets are number four at shot quality. Why is this relevant? Because one of the Jazz' biggest advantages every night that we've talked about throughout the year is the fact that the Jazz have this great edge in shooting and point dis- distribution and shot distribution to five or six points. They don't, they get it a little bit here, but they don't get it as much as usual. The same is true for the Rockets. The Rockets are known as the money ball team who have better shot distribution than mostly anyone, take the most threes, all those things. They actually have less good shot distribution than Utah, which is really different than what they're used to experiencing. And so that's where that's a bad, this is a bad matchup for them as well. Utah's defense has the fourth best shot quality in the NBA. So now you have the Rockets who don't, who have the fourth best offensive shot quality. The Jazz have the fourth best defensive shot quality. Where it gets really interesting is the Rockets don't follow through on the other end. The Rockets are 24th in the NBA in, for, in shot quality defense. And so this is an area where hopefully the Jazz can take advantage. And how will we know? We will have to take a look at what shot attempts the Jazz get at the rim and get on threes and even corner threes. So in the first matchup when the Jazz won, and interestingly, by the way, in these games you're going to see the opposite. The Jazz had 27 restricted area shots and eight, or, and eight corner threes. So 35 was their number on that night. On the December 6th game, the Jazz got 36 shots at the rim and eight corner threes. 44 was their number that night of really good shots. That's an incredibly high number, but the Jazz went 
4 of 23 on above-the-break threes. The next game out, the Jazz took 30 shots at the rim. So a little bit of an adjustment clearly by Houston as they allowed six less shots at the rim. Adjustment by the Jazz. They took 10 more corner threes. So the number was 48 shots by the Jazz that were either in the restricted area or corner threes. That's an incredibly high number. They did lose that game. That's probably the best one to watch if you're going to go back and watch a game. And then on December 2nd, you can see, or February 2nd, you see even a bigger adjustment by the Rockets. The Jazz got just 25 rim shots. They got 16 corner threes. So they got 41 exquisite shots. But notice that rim drop number. So the Jazz went from 36 rim shots in the win against the Rockets on December 17th down to 25 rim shots by the end of the season against them. Keep an eye on that. That's going to be a huge part of this series is whether or not the Jazz can get Rudy Gobert at the rim. And the reason this is so hard for the Jazz gets into a little bit more of this offensive element of things. So if you look at the amount of picks set in a game. The Utah Jazz are second in the league at 87 picks per game. That only Charlotte with Kemba Walker runs more picks on the ball than any than anyone in the league. If you look at off-ball screens in the league, the, the team that runs the most off-ball screens, just for interest, by the way, so you know is Orlando. So that's an interesting thing for them. Uh, in their matchup uh, in the first round with Toronto, is that they, that's something they do. We don't run a lot of off-ball screens. We're a little lower in that regard. We'd rather bring you to the ball and run it as a handoff, but just so you have that number, we run 50, we're run we 24th in the NBA in off-ball screens, um, it, and that's uh, who we are. Handoffs, though. So that's instead of an off-ball screen, we're going to run you the ball. We run 34 handoffs. So in a given night, on average, the Utah Jazz run 121 handoffs or picks. This is who we are. We run, we run more handoffs than anyone else in the league. We run a higher combination of these two than anyone else in the league. Charlotte runs about 11 less um, handoffs than we do. So our 121 is the most handoffs or picks of anyone in the league. That's our entire offensive structure. This is where this gets interesting. Defensively, you can allow picks or not allow picks. Well, how do you do that? Well, by the time the Rockets switch everything, teams stop setting picks against them. And so the average Rocket opponent runs 64 picks per 100 possessions per game. 64 picks, the third fewest of anyone in the NBA. And on defense, on defense, on handoffs, they allow the fewest. So the average opponent, by the time they play the Houston Rockets, only runs 83 handoffs or picks on a given night. But the Jazz usually run 121. The reason teams stop running those picks is because they don't work against a switching defense. And that's what makes this so interesting. Now, one thing I think is worth noting, and probably something for Quinn and the coaching staff to keep an eye on, is while that's what the logic tells you that it doesn't work, you know what? 
Houston, on these handoffs that actually take place, is not brilliant defensively. They're 14th in the league at defending handoffs. They're not brilliant at it. Maybe you're better off just continuing to do your thing. Against the handoffs, against the picks, they're not brilliant at it. In fact, they're... um they're middle of the pack again. They're about 20th in the league on, on defending a handoff. So, you know, teams bail out of this because of what, um, because of what they do with all their switching and the way they switch, and it makes it very, very difficult to play them. Um, and in turn, you are left with less options than you would otherwise. Teams don't drive against them. It, for whatever reason, the same thing happens. They allow the fourth fewest amount of drives in the league. Guess who drives the most? Utah. So we're the number one drive team. They're the number four team at not allowing drives. This is where this is just a really tough matchup on us. It takes us out of almost all of the things that we want to do offensively. Um, and that's what makes things awfully tough for us in this matchup and why it's so tough. All right, I'm going to look at Houston's offense in a second. Uh, we're going to go long today. All right, it's playoffs. And then Ben DeBose is going to join us for an extended for an extended segment uh, with Lockdown Rockets. Today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. I have got to tell you what. I am driving the Murdoch Hyundai Santa Fe. I actually want to pick up the phone and call Blake today and just say, it is yesterday. It's incredible. I was down at Channel 2 filming for... Um, Dave Fox or KUTV that will be on today uh, on their other station. And I just got back in the car. I was like, this thing is awesome. It really is. So it's good looking, great space inside. Uh, it's an SUV, decent size. Doesn't feel like it's huge, but it's got great size. I only ha- I don't have the third row seats. It, the technology on it, it's incredible. It, it drives itself. Like it really comes closer. It, I'm certain of it. Blake and I were in such a rush, he didn't give me all the details. I am certain it is slowing itself down on curves, which might mean I'm driving too fast. But um, that's a side note. But on Parley's, I, it is certainly – I have it cruise control set at some number. Police officers aren't listening. And it is slowing itself down on curves. The technology that comes – who would have thought that Hyundai was like this innovator? These are the things that have blown me away. Plus, if you go to Murdoch Hyundai at 4646 South State Street, you end up with – the Murdoch guarantee of a no regrets policy, making sure that you have a fabulous t- experience with them. You get car washes for life, oil changes, safety inspections, all these great things set up with Murdoch Hyundai. They are doing all extended service hours. They're going to make sure that you get this. Plus, check out the Kona. The Kona and the Tucsons are flying off the lots right now. The mini SUV Kona and the smaller size Tucson. Those are both, they look sporty and they are rolling. It's at 4646 South State Street in Murray, also in Logan and in Linden. Today's show is also brought to you by Homie. Homie is revolutionizing the real estate world for you and changing it so that you no longer are playing set commissions that are irrelevant to what you've done with your house. So what is Homie doing for you? They have set it up so you have a simple fee, flat fee, $1,500 to lift your house. Then from there, they have a team of experts that are going to work with you to make sure you get your experience. Is it working? The data says yes. In fact, the data shows right now that Homie is selling their houses uh, faster than the market value, that Homie is selling their spots, uh, or selling their spots, selling their houses uh, at a better price than the average house on the market. 
Uh, those are the kind of things that makes you move your meter. Homey saves you a ton of money. They sell homes faster, and they sell homes at 99.3% of the listing price. That is what Homey is doing for you. So go find out more if you're about to sell a house and see whether the new system that Homey brings to the marketplace, the revolutionary system, is going to uh, change your experience as well. Text Homey, H-O-M-I-E, or actually, that's not checks, lock to 88588. Text lock to 88588, and then Homey will reach out to you. That's lock at 88588. Uh, and uh They'll take care of you, look into it, find out what Homie can do for you. All right, continuing on this road, here's the interesting one about the Rockets. The Rockets are the absolute contrast to the Utah Jazz. They run the most isolation of anyone in the NBA. They run 30 possessions of isolation a night. The next closest is 19 a night by Oklahoma City, and the Rockets are the best in the league by a mile. This is not great for us. You know why? Because when you look at defending isolation, this is the one thing we don't do well. We're 20th in the league at defending isolation. Why? Because there's no system to it. What we are is a system-based defense. The number one team in the league at defending picks in the NBA is the Utah Jazz. Number two is the Toronto Raptors, by the way. Number three is the Boston Celtics. Miami's not in the playoffs. Number four is Indiana. Number five is Golden State. So those are the best teams in the league at defending picks. The reason we're great at it is we're a system-based defense. We funnel people into Rudy. We get it done. The number one team in the NBA at defending, or 11th, we're the 11th best team at defending handoffs, and teams run the most handoffs against us. So that's an area where we struggled early in the season. The scouting report got out that people are going to run handoffs, and so now people run as many handoffs as possible. And this is like our another area where we're not great. Guess what? The Rockets are the best handoff team in the NBA. They don't run a lot of them because they run a lot of isolation. They're 26 in the league and running them, but they're the best handoff team in the NBA, which is maybe the one area where we have a little bit of a weakness. So the two structures of these teams definitely um, are causing the Jazz, you know, cause this matchup to be unique and different. All right, Donovan Mitchell against the Houston Rockets this year. He had 38, 6, 23, and 26. He shot 27% from three. The thing that jumps out to me is Donovan for the year is a 40% catch-and-shoot three-point shooter and a 33% off-the-bounce three-point shooter. Since February 1st, he's 50% on catch-and-shoot, 36% off-the-bounce. But against the Rockets this year, 19 pull-ups and 11 catch-and-shoots. 19 pull-ups, 11 catch-and-shoots. So not a great ratio, right? So, And in the mid-range against Houston this year, he's 10 of 29. So this is, he's struggled a little bit. I went back and watched all 30 of his three-point shots against the Houston Rockets this year to see what I might find out. Few things that were noticeable. Lots of off-the-bounce pick-and-rolls at the top on the pick comes because they're going to switch it. Rudy rolls. He does it fast before Clint Capella can step up because the Rockets' defense wants to touch switch. If you watch them switch, they're stepping forward and they're touching the new guy that they're guarding so that there's nothing that's an aggressive switch rather than a soft switch. 
And when he came off those pick and rolls, he's taking a bounce, stepping into a three from straight away, which probably isn't his best shot. It's again, it's an off the bounce three instead of a catch and shoot three. Um, and he went two for six on those shots. Seven other times, he just decided, he got the switch and then he decided to go one on one. He made his first two and then missed his next five over the course of the series. That's, that's not an area where he's great. So what they give the Rockets credit, they were kind of able to get Donovan out of his regular situation. What jumped out at me was there were a bunch of play calls that Quinn Snyder dialed up that were set plays that were really good actions, whether it was a Ricky Rubio inbound to Gobert at the elbow, and then Rubio goes and sets the pick on Donovan, and because Harden's guarding Rubio, Harden doesn't really want to switch out on Donovan. Donovan pops out and gets a wide-open three. Um, there was a great action where Mitchell tosses it to Ingles. Ingles then sets a pick on Donovan, Ingles keeps going, a pick from Gobert. Now they've had to switch twice. Donovan flares right side, and he's wide open. Now, the one that can be a little misleading on this is that I'm watching this and only seeing the highlights, right? And so, therefore, um, I don't necessarily – sorry about that. I don't know if that came through. Uh, I don't know whether or not, you know, just because I'm watching the highlight, does that play work again, or do they run it 23 other times and it never worked, and that was the one time. Um, another great action, Crowder guarded by Harden, goes to Gobert, Crowder sets a pin down for Donovan, and Harden doesn't come out. The theme here is maybe Harden not coming out. So maybe the Jazz, Donovan only got four stationary catch and shoots out of his 33s against the Rockets this year. Maybe the way is some more of these set plays. A lot of these were walk up, pick and roll, Derek's at the top, the defender, Goes with fate, who is Austin Rivers in the play I'm thinking of. Favors rolls to the basket. Rivers goes with Favors because they switch. Nene doesn't come out. He gets a good look and he just missed it. But that, but the Jazz inability to make the above the break three against the Rockets is probably predicated on the fact that those shots are a bit different because the Rockets are switching and the Jazz aren't able to get into their regular stuff. That's kind of the whole point today of the show. All right, Ben DuBose joins us next from Locked on Rockets to break it all down for us. Today's show is brought to you in part by the Barbecue Pit Stop. All right, I know I said I'm in a snow globe, but I'm going skiing today, so it doesn't feel like barbecue weather. But it is. It's time to go do the barbecue thing. And the Barbecue Pit Stop is going to bring you basically an incredible, insane, unbelievable bob barbecue Hobby store. There are three locations, and I'm going to get it right. They're in Layton, right near the Hill Air Force Base, where all the guys come in. They're in Lehigh, and they're downtown at 1300 East and 300 West. Selection, expertise, and most importantly, lifelong barbecue advisors. And these guys are incredible. I've told you a lot about Kennedy. I'm going to turn Kennedy into a star. Kennedy is the passion-laden barbecue extraordinaire up at the Layton store. Clinton is in Lehigh, and Brian is in Salt Lake. When I was there, a guy came in. He had bought his smoker from them three years ago and comes in probably once or twice a week to try new things, to get new things, just loves the conversation with the guys about barbecue. That's his passion. If you're starting, they teach classes. If there's a level of entry that has you nervous, 
They can help you out in that regard. They cater to anyone. They'll help you out from the simplest things to make you master the greatest brisket. Or, uh, yeah, brisket. Um, it is the Barbecue Pit Stop, located in Layton, Layton, Layton. Also located in Lehigh, and also located in Salt Lake City at 1300 South and 300 West. It's the Barbecue Pit Stop. Here's my conversation with Rockets Ben DeBose. Hi, I'm David Locke, host of Locked on Jazz. And I'm Ben DuBose, host of Locked on Rockets. Jazz and the Rockets will play the 4-5 series. We're previewing it here on Locked on NBA. And Ben, I think this one's interesting. One, because these are two of the hottest teams in the NBA. Two, because I actually think it's a bad matchup for both teams. The Jazz have had a hard time scoring more than anything else against the Rockets. And if I dig into the numbers, it actually looks like the Rockets, some of their less good games have been against the Jazz. I could see that. The primary issue for the Rockets this year now, their defense has gotten better in the final 24 games. But in terms of why they started 11-14, and 14, why this 65-win team really until the All-Star break was tracking to be a sub-50, the biggest difference is that they could not rebound the ball. And when you think the Jazz, you look up front, Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, you think a very big physical team that rebounds the basketball, doesn't give a ton of second chances. So from the Rockets' perspective, I think they do a good job going back to the playoffs last year in these games of limiting Utah's opportunities on offense. The flip side is that where Houston is weakest, which is on the glass, that's a strength of the Utah Jazz. So to me, that's why it's kind of mixed in terms of whether it's a good matchup for Houston or not. Uh People probably don't use this metric a lot, but to back up Ben's point, when the Rockets get 76% of their defensive rebounds, that's a pretty high number, but that's they're 25-2. and two. So if you don't punish the Rockets on the defensive glass, you're in trouble. It's interesting because I think a lot of teams' instinct is to run back, get in transition, get set in the half court, not let the Rockets get fast break points, and so they don't go hit the glass. But the Rockets' defensive rebounding is over 80%. They're 16-0. and 0. They're 25-2 and two when they're over 76%. The story on both these teams, Ben, is this turnaround. From the Jazz standpoint, the turnaround is very schedule-based. The schedule got very soft. They took advantage of it. They did what they were supposed to. And in turn, since January 1st, they're one of the best teams in the league. Since February 1st, both these teams are the best, uh, two of the best teams in the league. The differentials are 1-2 and two in the league, I believe. What is the story on the Rockets' turnaround? Largely, I think it's twofold. I think it's first, James Harden saved the season because when you look at how they started, and actually one of the low points, they dropped to 11-13. and 13. There was a game in Utah, I'm sure you remember in December, that they got beat by 35. They looked completely uncompetitive, below 500, heading into the 25-game mark. And then shortly after that is when Harden started his 30-point streak, reached 32 games. And even though they ended up losing – Chris Paul, Clint Capella during that stretch, they not only stayed afloat, they actually, that's when they started their climb. And so, to me, from Houston's standpoint, they needed something to save them, and that's what Harden's superhuman stretch did. And then, since the All-Star break, that kind of kept them, it stabilized them, and then since the All-Star break, that's when they've gotten healthy again, Chris Paul, Clint Capella, that's when the defense has stabilized, going from really bottom five, bottom ten most of the year to top five over the final 24, 25 games since the break. And then at that point, that's been the closest thing to last year's Rockets, the 65-win group that we've seen. This is really a matchup of 
maybe the two best teams in the NBA since February 1st. The Rockets are the number one offensive team since February 1st, the number five defensive team. The Jazz are the number three offensive team and the number two defensive team after last night behind Orlando. The Rockets are the number one team in differential since February 1st at 9.9, which is an astronomically high number. The Jazz are number two in the league at 9.0. There's nobody else over eight. The Rockets are 24 and eight. The Jazz are 21 and nine. And yet, I think most people see it as a mismatch because Houston has clicked in looking like the team they were last year and Houston whitewashed Jazz in the playoffs last year. Do you see it as a mismatch? Slightly, but I don't see it as commanding because of the rebounding thing we discussed earlier. I think, to me, that's, the one bugaboo that Houston has consistently had that gives them trouble. And I said it after they lost to the Thunder, a game Tuesday night that would have given Houston the two seed. They had everything to play for. There are still, especially when the matchup is tough, these offensive lulls that Houston can go into. And while I don't think the Jazz are quite as athletic and long overall as the Thunder are, they do share enough of the same characteristics that I'm not going to say that it's just a commanding lead. Generally speaking, I think it's a good matchup for Houston only because having watched this a lot the last two years, I'm just not sure the Jazz have it, have it in them to score enough points. But given what Houston's weaknesses are, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier. It's not an ideal matchup for both teams. And I've seen enough from Utah on the glass and defensively that tells me that while I think Houston probably wins the game or, or the series, I don't think it's a commanding edge by any means. It's a bad matchup for the Jazz because the Rockets switch everything, the Jeff Mm -hmm. Mazzillic defense, and the Jazz are the team that run the most picks, the most handoffs, and if you're running those picks and those handoffs and they're switching everything, it doesn't really do anything, doesn't give you the advantage. Is the Rocket defense, that switching defense that caused the problems last year, that Jeff Mazzillic came back to fix, back on switching all the time, or are they playing different styles? They're primarily still switching. The biggest difference this year is that they're dropping Clint Capella more. Part of the reason, I don't know if he came in heavy or what, but to start the season, the first 20 games, and they got in that horrible start, Capella, and when people think of the Rockets' playoff run a year ago, they often think of Capella switching on to even like the Steph Currys of the league and holding his own. He was getting routinely burned. So in an effort to help the rebounding issue and also to mitigate uh, Capella not being quite as quick laterally. They, they've basically been switching one through four this year and dropping Capella as the five to help with rebounding. Now, that's not 100%. They do, at times, still have Capella switch, but that's the small distinction. They do still largely do the same things as far as switching. They're just not quite as aggressive with Capella's role in it as they were a year ago. I think the bad the reason it's not a great matchup for the Rockets, at least statistically, is that the Jazz warp the Rockets shot chart um, and forced them into more mid-range shots than about anybody does. Obviously, Gobert's able to drop. Um, they can hold, they deny three-point shots better than any team in the NBA. Is there a script by which people cause the Rockets problems? Is it to let James get his and not involve the others? Is it to, to double James and force the ball out of his hands? What's your What's your feeling on what uh, is the answer and the biggest, best way people have defended James Harden? Generally, I think it's to swarm and make other teams beat him. We were talking earlier about the record, which is a bit mixed, 
um, about Harden's usage and how well Houston plays when he gets a certain number of touches or shots. And when you look at the chart, you know, you, you would see kind of the in-between range is when Houston has some of its most struggles. I think it's always misleading that the highest game that Harden had usage-wise and when the Rockets won, that was that sort of outlier stretch from December to January, like we were talking about, that Harden was just out of his mind. He's still really good, but he's not that guy. It's not fair to hold him or anyone to that expectation. So generally speaking, if you take out the outlier stretch, the Rockets, they're at their weakest when you stop what they do best, which is James Harden. You put up at least some resistance, and you make other guys beat you. In the case of what Houston has now, what's interesting about this matchup, so many of these between the Jazz and the Rockets were early this season. In terms of more predictability besides James Harden, what has helped them a lot throughout the year, although they didn't on Tuesday in OKC, the midseason signings of Austin Rivers and Daniel House, that it's not just like these are shooters. They're also guys who can make plays off the bounce, do some things with the ball in their hand. And that's where, you know, people think Chris Paul in the mid-range. And, of course, that's the big storyline if it's not James Harden. But besides that, Rivers and House, those are two guys that were brought in to sort of help if teams are going to overplay James Harden. And we just haven't seen much of them in the Houston-Utah matchup since so many of them came early in the season. All right, I've got some geeky notes for you here. You ready for these, Ben? I think they're interesting. They back up a little what you said. Houston's yep. 12 worst offensive games of the year. Now, four of the 12 happened when Carmelo was still on the team. So to some extent, really, those shouldn't count. But just mm-hmm. keeping those in for a second, the second worst, fifth worst, and ninth worst were all against the Jazz. One of those with wow. Carmelo. You take out Carmelo, then the single worst outing of the year offensively for the Rockets was on December 6th. And the December 17th game becomes the fifth worst, so the first and the fifth. And where this becomes most interesting to me is when you look at the – so that's on that's on one side. That's the Rockets' offense. The other mm-hmm. part that's interesting to me is when you look at the Rockets' defensive uh, approach on things and you look at the Rockets' worst – defensive nights in regards to shot quality. Not necessarily shots going in, but the shots they allow, right, for the season? Mm-hmm. The Jazz are yeah. one, the Jazz are five, the Jazz are nine, and the Jazz are 13. So the Jazz mm. had four of the 13 games in which they got the best looks against the Rockets' defense. Now, they didn't make the shots. The Jazz missed a tremendous amount of shots against the Rockets. But to me, that's where... The Jazz actually tax the Rockets. They may not have the personnel to do it, but systematically they tax the Rockets. The big question to me, and I think the final question, where is Chris Paul as a player right now? A lot better than he was early in the season, but the big question, and it's going to play into the data that you were just saying, is how much can he generate separation, especially in the mid-range game? Because you look at his final numbers, uh, you know, I think he made five of his nine threes, like 24, eight, and six, that finale against OKC. If you just look at the box score, you would say he's great. And by and large, he was. I'm not trying to talk down on the guy. But generally speaking, what happened is that he basically got hot from three, made a lot of really difficult looks. When the Thunder really put the clamps on in the fourth quarter, and the Rockets talked about their offensive lull earlier, that has been an issue at times, going back to the last postseason. They didn't really try to let Chris Paul take over and use the mid-range game. And you could say that, well, you know, Mike D'Antoni's been sick. He wasn't out there. Maybe it was just a bad read on the situation. But the thing you wonder, 
you know, he's 33 years old. It's year 14. Is Chris Paul still capable of generating enough separation consistently to sort of use that mid-range game as an antidote if things are going wrong and you're, you're squeezing the threes, as you mentioned, the shot chart, and you're not letting James Harden take over the game? To me, that's the real question. I wouldn't say that he failed against that, against the Oklahoma City Thunder. I would just say for how hot he was making all those threes, putting up the numbers, it was surprising to me that Houston did not try it more. And based on the numbers that you threw out, it, it, it sounds like, and I would just agree anecdotally through watching the four Rockets Jazz games this year, that it's probably something that Houston's going to have to do to uh, unlock the Utah Jazz defense. And I don't know that the Jazz have enough offense to beat the Rockets. That's, that's, you made the point earlier. I think that's probably the most accurate point of all is I'm, I'm not convinced that the Jazz have the – and I guess the question is, is the Rockets' defense, which has been ranked, whatever I said earlier, I think second or third since February 1st, um, is or actually f- fifth since February 1st, is it really that good, Ben? I don't know that it's that good. They've got the benefit of a scheduling stretch, but I think it's legitimately good. I don't know if I'd buy top five, but I would say top ten, yes. They figured a lot of things out. They still don't have the length that they had a year ago. You know, the, I mentioned Rivers House. They've gotten a lot more stable in their rotations. They're communicating better. They, they've made the switches. I don't know that I think it's the same as, you know, Ariza and Bob Mute that era, just because on top of everything else, they were so long, and that helped them to be not quite as much of a liability on the glass. But I do think they're legitimately top 10, top five, what the metrics are might be a slight sample size exaggeration, but they're good enough to where I think they're a, a consistent Top 10, assuming they're healthy. Interesting to last year's series that Dante Exum was so key defensively. Trevor Reza was so key defensively and neither in this series. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, there's a clip, by the way, on NBA Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it yet, of uh, Pat Beverly appearing to give Jay Crowder pointers on guarding James Harden. I don't know if that's going to help, but it's a funny clip nonetheless. I know. I'm just worried about the fact that Jay Crowder is now guarding James Harden when I saw that clip. That's Well, all yeah, right. right? Like, That's what I mean. <laughs> that means something went wrong defensively. I don't think Quinn Snyder expects to have James Harden well, um, guarding yeah, him. That, yeah, that caught me off guard, too. I just I, I just laughed because, you know, you can't hear the words. But yeah, you could uh, see if you read the context clues that uh, that's definitely get him some pointers on Harden. But I agree. That's probably not the uh, number one guy for the Jazz to pick up James on a regular basis. All right, your thoughts or your key item or what's your what's your simple thought for the series that you think is probably the single most important thing? What version of Chris Paul? It goes back to the last point because I think the Jazz, they have enough with defense and rebounding to hang around, and they're well-coached enough, they're disciplined enough to where I think Harden could have a good series. It's not as free-flowing of a series like, say, the Clippers or the Spurs would have been to where I think you can just have Harden go nuts by his regular season standards. I think it's one where to unlock the defense, you're going to need to test Chris Paul, and can he do the majority of what he did a season ago? So, you know, I haven't made a final pick yet. I go into it thinking Rockets in five, Rockets in six. But really, I just think that what version of Chris Paul, that's the difference in can the Jazz, you know, steal one of the first two in Houston and make this a long series, or, you know, are the Rockets, I don't know that offensively they'll be dominant against the Jazz, but I guess the best way to put it is can they score enough to where the Jazz and their offensive deficiencies become overwhelming. And to me, it comes down to after James Harden, who are the guys that step up. And primarily that's Chris Paul. You can throw, as mentioned, Daniel House, Austin Rivers in there as well. But I think given his stature, Chris Paul is the guy to watch above all else. It's an interesting point you bring up. Capella and Gobert both have a similar offensive impact. 
Harden and Mitchell are not quite the same, but they both have huge usage rates. And it may be a question of whether Chris Paul is superior to and Chris Paul and or P.J. Tucker or whomever, Austin Rivers, whomever else, is superior to the Joe Ingles, Ricky Rubio, Jay Crowder, whatever group the Jazz. I mean, I think, and it feels as though that should be the case, that those guys are better offensive players. But it's a good point that to some extent maybe the big boys and the, and the middle and the stars and with the ball in their hands kind of weigh each other out in those next ones. I'll throw one at you. Um, that I think is the key to the series. The last two matchups, which were both losses, interestingly, the Jazz, I'm a big shot distribution guy, broke the Rockets' shot distribution defense. The Jazz took 16 and 18 corner threes in those two games. If they can do that for the series, math is on their side, which is a rarity against the Rockets. What's also interesting is in the final three games that the Jazz and Rockets played this year, the Jazz shot 12 of 65 on above-the-break threes. 12 of 65. Wow. Is that because the Rockets do something in their switching defense where they can test them really well? Or did the Jazz just have really bad shooting nights? And if they do you know, if they do that, they lose. But if, they, if that's just a bad luck shooting nights and they shoot those better, then this series may be closer than people think. Ben DuBose. I think. Go ahead. Your final thoughts. Oh, yeah. I was just saying, I, I think that matches the eye test of what I've seen it just comes down to whether whether that's an outlier or if Houston just gives Utah a much more challenging quality of looks than what their normal normals would, would normal numbers would suggest. And from my view, it's hard to say not having watched Utah as much as you do, but I agree with you that that makes sense in terms of whether it's a bad matchup or whether Houston's just got advantage of uh, a couple of bad nights from the Jazz. Ben DuBose does great work with Locked on Rockets. Listen to him throughout the series. I'm David Locke. This has been Locked on Jazz, of the host of Locked on Jazz. That wraps up Locked on Jazz. Go check out Locked on NBA. Amazing day. And also follow Locked on NBA Net on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is the collection of all of our hosts on one feed for you. So make sure you grab that. Instagram's always the biggest stories that are taking place as the local experts answer it for you. It's all part of the Locked on Podcast Network.